This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. The current Congress started off last year with an historic show of dysfunction, taking 15 rounds of voting to elect a speaker. Things did not get any better as that speaker eventually got deposed and then quit Congress altogether. And while it is early in this year, it looks like we are in for more of the same. This week, we saw the House and the Senate devolve into what some observers dubbed failure theater. One senator, Chris Murphy of Connecticut, asked simply, what the hell just happened? Helping us answer that question is Molly Reynolds. She's a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, who we welcome back to the Political Theater Podcast. Hello, Molly. Hello, Jason. Thanks for having me back. It's it's a pleasure to have you. Um, and I, so I feel like we almost we all, we have to start almost at sort of the beginning. Just just reciting the facts seems almost it it just kind of helps I think to process some some of this. Um, I uh, I'm, I'm actually I'm writing a column right now where I just start with the the first part of the of the day on Monday uh, when. Uh, Mike Johnson announced that uh, the the whole number of the House was down to 431 because Brian Higgins, uh, a Democrat from the Buffalo area uh, in the House, had had quit to take a job at a performing arts center or something like that. Something, you know, which seems like, I mean, people used to think of Congress maybe as a somewhat (laughs) nice, you know, good job to have. uh, But Brian Higgins was like, I think I'm ready to run a performing arts center in Buffalo. Um, And and that put into motion some of what we saw later, which was that the House proceeded to, you know, move on impeachment articles uh, against the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Um, and part of that was made possible because they felt that they had the votes with Higgins gone. So I, um, you know, the, the next day the you know, we saw, I mean, the, the, both, you know, Democrats and Republicans disagree on, on whether impeachment is justified. Uh, but then we saw what we saw on Tuesday night when the House brought those impeachment articles up was um, I I have a, a hard time remembering a time when I've seen such dysfunction and failure. The failure theater thing really does you know sort of come to mind. That that phrase stuck in my head, and I'm curious your thoughts about like what what you were thinking when you're seeing this go down. Yeah, so it's you know unusual for us to see a vote fail unpredictably um, on the floor of either um, the House or um, the Senate, but probably at least before this Congress, especially um, the House, where um, you know it's relatively uncommon for a majority party to have as slim a majority as the current Republican conference does. Um, and particularly on the kinds of things that the leadership decides to bring to the floor, we generally expect that, you know, they don't bring something to the floor unless they have the votes. Um, you know, Nancy Pelosi is famous for saying, like, first you count the votes and then you take the vote. Um, and that you don't... That seems um, very old-fashioned now. <laughs> 
Um, and so in that sense, um, sort of bringing uh, these um, articles of impeachment um, against Secretary Mayorkas to the floor um, without a firm uh, grasp on the whip count, um, or in this case, sort of a firm grasp on the attendance situation um, was, um, was surprising in some part, at least to me, because there's no... Um, there's, we don't really think there's a chance that the Senate is going to convict Secretary Mayorkas right. of. Um, so even if the, ho- if the House had um, right. passed the articles of impeachment, like they're not, um, the the Senate would have to probably dispose of them in some way. Right. Um, uh, revisiting the Senate's impeachment trial rules is. Um, uh, something that's like buried in the back of my head from um, from uh, you know three and four years ago, respectively. <laughs> um, but they'd have to do something right. um, if they if they came o- if um, um, uh, an articles came over from the house. Uh, but there's no um, there's no sort of uh, substantive clock uh, right. in the way that there might be if we were talking about a, a measure to keep the government open or something like that. Right. So in that sense, it is sort of surprising. Um, it's also a little bit surprising. So there's um, some reporting um, uh, out today um, uh, where Ken Buck, who was one of the um, you know three uh, Republicans to vote, um, I, I believe there were three of them to vote against the um, the Mayorkas impeachment articles, um, where he said that uh, you know he had been publicly um, opposed to impeachment for um, for quite some time. Um, and uh, he has this quote that says, um, and I'm reading here, Speaker Johnson never called me. Um, and then he basically says that um, if McCarthy had called him, he would have yelled. Um, Mike knows me well enough not to yell. Um, and Bader would have broken my arm. And so just this like sense of this evolution of the House Republican leadership um, in this time of a vanishingly narrow majority um, and real challenges at getting um, things of legislative consequence. Um, Basic done on the funding well. bills, right? Yes, you know, yes. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, you're sort of right to start our discussion of the week with um, sort of Mayorkas um, episode, um, but well, we can we can talk about yeah. some other uh, sort of uh, um, before. Well, before we yeah. let the Mayorkas thing go, I mean, I just I, I just want to set the scene for you know I, I I have finally realized that there are people not like you and me who are either in the chamber or are glued to C-SPAN for these sort of episodes, uh, but you know it. It really was extraordinary. Um, you know, the the we rarely see a packed house. You know, only on pretty pretty significant votes. Uh, even when the when the full house is voting on something, people usually just stick their cards in the card. You know, the card reader yes or no, and then they leave. You know, they they they're out, they're out they're out going to go to a fundraiser or something, right? <laughs> um, the, it was a packed house. Uh, there there was a real sense of like they didn't know what was going on. There was it, it ended up in a tie vote, two fifteen to two fifteen. Um, three Republicans voted with all Democrats, uh, and then one, at, at, at the end, one of the members of the leadership team, Blake Moore, who's a Republican from Utah, he changed his vote so they can it's a, in a procedural move so they can bring it back up. Uh, and the, he's now right. had to try and explain that to right. his constituents, right? Um, yeah, who to. Uh, uh, 
uh, it's, I try to explain congressional procedure for a living. It's not easy. And it's definitely not easy if you're um, a member who all of a sudden now has a lot of attention on you right. or change your vote for a procedure. And it's reason. also a relatively new member too. I mean, this is, he's not some crusty old guy, you know, who, who's been doing this for, you know, decades. Um, and it was, it was extraordinary too, because I mean, the, the, as you said, the, um, they weren't even quite sure who was going to show up. Um, th- and there was this almost ghoulish proceedings, you know, where they, they brought Hal Rogers, uh, who's the 86 year old Dean of the house, a Republican from Kentucky. He'd been a ca- in a car accident last month. And he comes in with this incredibly formidable neck brace. You know, uh, one, one of the reporters next to me in the, in the, in the gallery said like, you know, he's going to have to rely on somebody else to tell him that they got his vote right on the voting board. Cause he can't move his neck. You know, he can't like look up. Um, and so, you know, this is, again, this is an 86 year old man who's in a car accident is who's like immobilized. It's something like out of a Coen brothers movie or something. And then at the last instant, when they, th- when the Republicans thought that they had the vote, they had a two fifteen two fourteen vote tally in the, they wheel in Al green, the Democrat from Texas who had abdominal surgery on Friday, he's in a hospital gown and he votes, you know, no to not things at two fifteen, And, as you know, it was this weird thing. They kept the vote open for like, you know, more than a half an hour. Johnson looked like somebody had run over his dog. He was trying to figure out what to do. He's huddling with his leadership team and his staff. They finally called the vote after, you know, more uh, changed his vote. And then immediately, you know, everybody files out. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has been one of the chief architects of the impeachment drive against Mayorkas, said, we're just going to come back next week as as soon as we possibly can. We're going to get Steve Scalise, the majority leader, back. And again, more sort of ghoulish you know this there because you know this guy has cancer he's been getting chemotherapy you know back home uh and they and they want they want him to like come just just to cast a vote to impeach somebody for a futile exercise for you know a, a trial that will go nowhere in the senate and i just thought like this is such a high level of dysfunction and then again the math may change i mean they may get scalise back depending on if he's well enough to travel um but then there's a special election on Tuesday in New York, which may very well elect a Democrat, again, changing the calculus again. It's right. incredibly there's, unstable. There's no telling what else could happen. You know, we didn't, there was no ability to predict that last month Hal Rogers was going to be in a car accident right. um, and any number of things that can happen um, to um, to members. Um, I will, um, I'll note one thing, which is that, um, no, I uh, I have done a fair amount of work on the House's experience with proxy voting uh, mm-hmm. between the middle of 2020 and the end of 2022, <laughs> uh-huh. which um, was uh, uh, initially created um, under the Democratic majority as a COVID era adaptation to allow members um, to, you know, medically vulnerable members to not have to travel to Washington to mean that there were fewer people um, on the floor of the House, all sorts of things. Um, it was, uh, you know, challenged in court by um, uh, Kevin McCarthy and other Republican lawmakers. Republicans chose to um, to get rid of it when they took the majority at the beginning of 2023. 20, uh, and I will just say that if proxy voting had still been around, this would have solved their problem. Um, they wouldn't have to rouse people from hospital beds yeah. or chemotherapy Um, to vote. And so uh, I think, again, as we think about sort of like the institutional um, 
context in in the House is that we have this period of very narrow majorities, this um, desire on the part of the majority party. This isn't new to sort of use the House to, um, you know, move things, even if they are dead on arrival um, in the in the Senate. Right. But we, you know, it is. Um, uh, I think we should think about the effort to impeach Mayorkas as kind of a the next step in the evolution of you use the word feudal, um, sort of feudal impeachments. Um, this idea that uh, you know the impeachment power is um, uh, is something that the, the House now sometimes turns to, even when they know uh, that the Senate is not likely uh, to um, to take uh, to ultimately convict uh, the individual who's been impeached by the House. It's almost um, like a vote of no confidence, like in a parliament. Yeah. I mean, I think um, uh, and I, you know, one question this raises is, is, does, you know, does the U.S. Congress in our current environment, if not a vote of no confidence, but like need a um, need a procedural tool to be able to do that that doesn't rise to the level of, say, um, uh, impeachment. Um, but that's sort of a, a, a bigger question, I think, as we think about like how the House and, frankly, also the Senate um, can and should function in this time of like very high polarization and um, uh, very narrow majorities um, and uh, divisions within the two parties in right. both chambers. So before we talk about the Senate, I feel like the next the next vote that night was another is, is almost like a bridge to what we're going to talk about in the Senate with their yeah. you know border security and and supplemental for Israel and uh, and Ukraine and, and Taiwan, which is um, Speaker Johnson again you know bowing to the the sort of the fact that he's not going to be able to get a lot of votes on party lines because he's got so many people who he's got a u- pretty unified Democratic opposition and then he's he just doesn't have the votes all the time within his own conference so he started putting uh must pass bills on the suspension calendar and this is a this is a, a procedure that enables them to pass uh things as long you know without a rule without going to the rules committee uh and it, it enables them to pass it but it's got to be uh with a super majority so it has to have overwhelming support um kind of like this in the Senate <laughs> for a lot of things, a lot of legislation. And so he's used this to uh, muscle through uh, most the most recent continuing resolutions, which have allowed, allowed the government to remain funded uh, until March, uh, because he can count on Democrats uh, to, to give him enough of a, a cushion a, along with some members of his party to pass these bills. And he doesn't have to worry about the Freedom Caucus, say, or you know some deficit hawks or so forth. And so he tried to do this with a, a a supplemental bill that was going to be just about Israel. They didn't want to talk about Ukraine, and they don't. And he said that they don't want to deal with the border security, you know, um, package that was being nego- negotiated on a bipartisan basis in the sense they were just going to do Israel. Everybody agrees on this, you know. Everybody should want this, and of course, it failed. <laughs> it needed 260 votes. It got 250. Um, both Democrats and Republicans voted against it. And it just seems like the the thing that they thought that they had, this is like, oh, we'll just put must pass bills on the suspension calendar and everybody will do it. And Democrats, you know, will give us the cushion. Even that doesn't work now. Yeah. So I want to, um, before I talk about the Israel uh, bill uh, specifically, I just want to dwell on this um, sort of pivot by Johnson to using the suspension calendar um, or su- suspension of the rules in this way. Um, this is uh, sort of 
at least in the contemporary era, um, a historical development. So, you know, we have long thought of um, the majority party in the House as acting as a very strong procedural majority, if not a sort of policy majority or having agreement on all of the substance that um, folks um, folks might want to take up. There's sort of long been this understanding that your responsibility as a member of the majority party is to vote with the party on procedural votes to vote with the party on these special rule votes. So these votes that occur before the vote on the bill itself, that um, the rule sets the terms of debate on on the underlying bill. How many amendments? How long are they going to debate it for? That sort of thing. And that it is a responsibility of you as a member of the majority party to vote with your party on these votes because the Speaker of the House gets to, working with the other um, members of the majority party leadership, gets to set the agenda. And your job is to help make sure that what the decisions they have made are the ones that can, um, about what should be on the floor, that can actually happen. And we've seen over the past nine months or so, just a real departure from this norm um, yeah. among Republicans in, in the House. And so once, and some of this um, is related to um, the fact that when Speaker McCarthy or former Speaker McCarthy was elected um, to that position um, uh, a little over a year ago, he had to make a series of concessions to um, folks within the Republican conference. One of those concessions was an agreement to put um, several um, kind of Freedom Caucus aligned members on the Rules Committee. So there's some set of things where um, Johnson is now turning to suspension of the rules to move them because he feels like they can't get through rules because you have these um, sort of dissident Republicans on that committee who won't vote for um, a rule in committee. And then um, there, I think, are other situations where we actually, and we have seen some rules themselves fail on the floor because you have other um, Republicans who are trying to take that part of the process hostage to get things um, that they want. So I just want to make sure that our, our listeners who like don't necessarily spend a ton right. of time thinking about like what is suspension of the rules understand that it's really unusual that we've gotten to this point right. where um, Speaker Johnson is feeling like he needs to turn to this um, this process. I, I have joked repeatedly that you know. I, I do a fair amount of, you know, lecturing to audiences of, of various kinds. And I have PowerPoint slides about, you know, legislative procedure in the House. And I absolutely have a line that says that suspension of the rules is usually used for non-controversial measures. And now I have to go in and change that because right. like Mike Johnson is uh, is is innovating in this um, context because he has to. It's for um, naming post offices and multi-billion dollar supplemental funding packages. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, uh, you know, you have these suspension votes at the, you often have them um, at the very beginning of the week. They are the, the, the first set of votes that the House will take in a given week. And sometimes people talk about them as bed check votes to make sure that like people are actually have returned to town and right. are, are ready to do the balance of um, the balance of the work for the week. And so just thinking about um, that broader context, then we have this specific question um, or you know, we're going to talk, I think, about the Senate in a minute, but we have this kind of puzzle that is currently um, uh, vexing uh, members in both chambers yeah. about um, a set of um, priorities um, on which there are probably in both chambers a major majority support for 
but the majorities that support these things are non-overlapping. You have what the um, you have what the White House wants, what the White House is asking for, um, and you have the broader political context of the um, uh, presidential election and sort of former President Trump out there in the wings, kind of looming over all of this. And so you get to the point where. Johnson feels like he needs to turn to the suspension um, process to move this Israel-only bill. You have um, some number of Republicans who don't want to provide additional assistance for Israel without corresponding cuts to um, probably to the IRS. That was what they put in the version that they passed um, back in, I think, November. And then you have some number of Democrats who oppose um, additional assistance for Israel because they are unhappy with a whole range of things about the U.S. role, um, about sort of the um, the conduct of the Israeli military intervention into Gaza. So you have, you have those Democrats. Then you have Democrats who might be generally supportive of uh, additional aid to Israel, but are responding to the fact that the Biden administration has said that Joe Biden would veto an Israel-only bill because what the Biden administration really wants is also to get additional assistance for Ukraine out of this. And so you have like all these pieces. It's in this broader political context, and it is becoming or continuing to be very difficult to figure out a way to put them together. Yeah, and and I think that you, I mean, you've hit it like so well there because the consequence. I mean, we a lot of people, I think, you know, look at Congress and they're like, oh, that's just them becoming more dysfunctional than before. That's not really news. This, these are literally the biggest questions of our lives right now: whether Ukraine or Russia will retain more of the territory of of like a sovereign country in in Ukraine. Whether more people will starve to death in Gaza, <laughs> uh, I mean, whether China will feel more comfortable in encroaching on Taiwan, um, and then also like the the border, you know, which is uh, the, uh, you know this is these all these issues are interlinked, and the as you said, there's a majority support for some sort of version of this. It's just not coming within the parties themselves. <laughs> so let's move over to the Senate because this this was, I mean, the it, you know, it felt like on on Tuesday <laughs> that it was almost like, oh, you think that that's dysfunctional uh, house? Hold my beer. You know, <laughs> months ago, I mean, the 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 calculus that had been forming was, okay, you know, we can do Ukraine aid. This is from the perspective of a lot of House uh, Republicans and, and some Senate Republicans. We can do Ukraine aid, but it's got to be coupled with a, a border security package that you know basically gets control operational control over the border and and maybe changes the asylum system and so forth because you know this is this is a, an issue that is polling you know like people are very concerned about the Im- immigration Republicans think that it's a winning issue for them uh, in, a, in an election year certainly the Donald Trump has said as much and so you know a couple of like really Policy-oriented senators, a uh, few, you know, got down to brass tacks and started negotiating. James Langford, a Republican from Oklahoma, very conservative guy, very serious guy, uh, was tapped by Mitch McConnell, the minority leader. Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Connecticut, the "what the hell just happened" guy, <laughs> uh, you know, was was uh, you know uh, tapped by 
uh, Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, and then Kirsten Sinema, the independent uh, sen- uh, uh, senator from Arizona, my home state, uh, which has seen, you know, is, it's not Texas gets more of the attention, but obviously Arizona has a huge border with Mexico where, you know, a lot of these issues are coming up. The three of them were the lead negotiators on this. They spent four months working on this. They thought that they had a good package. Donald Trump says, I don't want this package. It kind of disappears overnight, leaving Lankford holding the bag to the point where people in his own negotiating team, you know, said that they wouldn't support it like Tom Tillis. <laughs> and and this leads, leads Murphy to say, like, what what is happening? Like, we literally produce what you said you wanted and now you say you don't want. And that to me, that is the epitome of bad faith negotiations. The people had good faith in negotiating. And then as soon as they got what they wanted, others just pulled the rug out from under them. Yeah. And I think we can, um, or I can certainly sort of offer an explanation of why this is where we ended up. But before, like, but at the end of the day, it's, I think, for people who care about kind of the health of the institution over the medium to the long term, it is, um, it is deeply problematic to have to live in a world where, um, People are asked, deputized, to go and try and work out a compromise. And I'm not an immigration policy expert. Immigration policy experts, I think, have a range, like have raised a range of questions about what this would actually do. Would it actually do any of the things that people um, say that they want out of a, a major immigration law change? It's a it, the amount of change that was um, in that language is significant. But at the end of the day. Murphy and Cinema and Lankford sat down and said, we are going to try and work to work out an agreement. And it's sort of concerning, again, from an institutional perspective, that they did that. And then within 24 hours, maybe 48 hours of releasing the agreement that they had come to, the sort of politics swamped any possibility of um, moving that substantive um, uh, agreement, and I think it's um, I think it's real. It's also important to just highlight um, how basically what Republicans could not say yes to. Um, this is a, these are big changes, and to kind of put it in some um, historical context, um, you know, we've had over the past decade or. St- so, um, actually longer than that, almost 20 years, a series of attempts by particularly groups in the Senate across party lines to reach big compromises on um, on immigration. You start with kind of the McCain-Kennedy proposal in 2006, 2007, 2000-ish. Um, you have the Gang of Eight in 2013. You have this um, effort in the, at the beginning of 2018 where the Senate votes on like four separate ideas. In all of those negotiations, it was kind of an article of faith for Democrats that whatever Republicans were going to demand that the democratic demand in exchange was going to be some kind of path to citizenship, some sort of um, pathway to to, um, legalization for individuals who were here um, and undocumented. And that included um, at various points kind of fixes for the dreamers, um, individuals who are brought to this country um, by their parents before they were 18. And so none of that was in this proposal. So it it is um, what Democrats were willing to give up to Republicans in this negotiation um, to try and get 
to a what down, oh, excuse me what Republicans said they wanted, which was a big change in um, uh, immigration law around um, the operations of the, the southern border, and then get the other thing that Democrats have said that they want, and also that many Republicans want, which is additional assistance to Ukraine, um, and then to sort of have that all fall apart um, because of these broader political forces um, is uh, it doesn't say anything good about um, kind of our long-term future in trying to incentivize um, uh, compromise. Um, I don't want to sort of elevate bipartisanship as kind of a goal in its own right, but in a world where the filibuster exists in the Senate and neither party is going to have a 60-vote majority, you know, working across party lines to try and get things that can um, move to the Senate is a a reality of our institutions. And so this is really um, sort of one way to think about it is why would Jim Lankford or anyone else like Lankford, right. who is a very conservative senator, but is sort of dispositionally someone who came to Washington to try to get things done? Why would any of them kind of take up a charge from their conference um, going forward if they believe that um, like the conference isn't going to stand behind them when it comes time to actually vote on the thing? Yeah, I, I find it like deeply depressing uh, because it's – it's a signal also that if you do the work, you will not be rewarded because yeah. legislating is hard. I mean, there's no there's no two ways around it. Ranting and raving on Twitter and at political rallies and, and demonizing people in a campaign uh, is not nearly as difficult. Now, I'm not saying that that's not a part of politics. It's always been a part of politics. I mean, going way before you and I were born, before in the young days of the country, people have been you know, using political dirty tricks and campaign tactics and demonizing the other side. I'm not, this isn't, that is not a new thing, but there have always been people who have been, who have been willing to do the work, the hard work of actually legislating, of coming up with new policy. Uh, It would be as if a company that produced, say, you know, phones was like, we're going to let the engineers work on a new phone. And then as soon as they're done, we're just going to trash them fire them or demoralize them and then just go on a marketing blitz about how great we are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I think, it's just a signal like your, your good work is not appreciated and will not be rewarded. Yeah. I mean, I think they're one of the, when I think about sort of the broader um, challenges facing the U S Congress, this idea that it has become a place where people say things as opposed to a place where people do things right. is a real problem for, um, for the future of our democracy, for the future of, um, it as a legislative body trying to solve and address the problems that face the country. You know, I admit it's not always easy, but I uh, remain an eternal optimist about the um, the possibilities of um, Congress as um, a representative body uh, in in our democracy. But when the incentives cut against really sitting down and figuring out the details of what a policy change that might be able to get through look like that just um, that makes it really hard to see a productive um, future and um, you know also presents big separation of powers challenges because one of the things that you one of the sort of arguments that you've heard Republicans make this week um, as to why they are they have walked away from this um, uh, deal that um, Lankford negotiated is this, oh, 
actually, we don't need new law because the president has all the power he needs to do things on the border and President Biden just isn't doing it, Um, which again, I'm not I'm not an expert, so I can't adjudicate the the merits of that claim in a legal sense. But from a um, from an institutional sense, the idea that the response to by members of Congress to a problem is to say, oh, actually, the president should just solve that. It's a it's an abdication of right. um, of power um, and a willingness to sort of transfer your own power to another branch because you want a certain outcome is, uh, I think, uh, again, uh, concerning to me. And we see it, too, in the way that this is playing out with just the eternal debate on continuing resolutions for the, the appropriations process. Every time Congress, you know, passes another continuing resolution to just fund the government, the flat, you know, fund the government at its own, at the current levels, they take away their own prerogative uh, to to affect things, they 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 take away their ability to say this money goes to this, this money goes to this, because the administration has a lot more leeway in a continuing resolution than it does if it's responding to directives. To, you have to spend this money in this manner uh, from the Congress, and it's it's an abdication of the power of the purse again, so people can just run to a television camera or run to their you know social media account and blast the other side. Yeah, it's um, uh, it's a real um, it's a real challenge um, to think about um, going forward. Certainly, over like the medium to the long term, let alone the very short term, which is you know we're having this conversation um, uh, on February eighth. We have about a month until um, the uh, current continuing resolutions <laughs> funding the government start to run out. There are two of them. Yep. Um, I think they have. They still have staggered expiration dates. Yes, yeah. um, and so uh, on one level, we're going to have to confront some of these questions very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, as a as a medium to longer term uh, question, this, these bigger institutional separation of powers considerations are also at play. Well, Molly, I don't want to end on a downer, but I don't know how else to end it. <laughs> you know, we are, as you said, we're. This is February eighth. The Senate is still. Uh, they've they've tried a couple of different things with their. You know, they they they. They did not. They were not able to proceed on a border Ukraine Taiwan Israel package earlier this week. They're trying to. They they're going to try to strip out the border parts of it and just do the security parts to see. But it doesn't sound like that's uh, a, a starter. So, um, I mean, th- nothing happens until something happens. I guess is <laughs> is as good as I've got right right now. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the um, one of the big challenges um, to uh, forcing action on this kind of supplemental piece um, is that uh, so um, my understanding is that the Ukrainians need help and they need help as fast as we can get it to them. But there isn't necessarily from the perspective of individual members of Congress, like a looming deadline where they will bear a really um, significant cost for not um uh, not proving additional assistance to um, to Ukraine, and I, I sort of sense the same is true of Israel. Um, uh, and obviously, the politics of assistance to Israel are um, differently complicated than the politics of assistance to Ukraine. Um, and so, the I think part of why um, you know it's it's 
possible for Congress to sort of keep spinning its wheels on this is because there isn't this action forcing mechanism. So um, I don't know if this is, uh, I don't want to be too optimistic, but I do think that um, one thing we should pay attention to in the next several weeks is whether it seems like whatever resolution to the funding for the um, the fiscal year, uh, for the, re- the, the rest of the fiscal year, um, for the rest of the discretionary um, appropriations process, whether that is at all a possible vehicle for um, moving any of this additional um, assistance to other um, other countries um, in the in the national security space. And one reason why I think this is possible, um, uh, I would not go as far as to say it's probable, but one of my sort of iron rules for watching Congress is, you know, when people are mad about something, were they ever possibly going to support the thing that they are mad about? So if you think about the fact that particularly in the House and probably also in the Senate, the people, the same people who are most sort of opposed to additional assistance to Ukraine are also people who were never going to vote for a spending deal that resolves the discretionary budget for the rest of the the Congress. So like sort of the Freedom Caucus and their fellow travelers in the House, for Mm -hmm. example. Yeah. And so does that, you know, and kind of the political consequences for Mike Johnson are very relevant here. um, But is that, does that open a lane for, um, for the possibility of you know, getting some of these other things um, done and on the know, suspension calendar. <laughs> on the suspension calendar, um, man, I, uh, I, uh, I, I expect that that's how we'll um, we'll keep the government open for the re- the rest of the year, which is really um, uh, my uh, my colleague uh, Sarah Bender, who's also a, a mm-hmm. Congress scholar, and I have been talking about the need to come up with sort of a new name for these these bills that Johnson is using suspension of the rules for because they're different than our to go back to where we started this conversation our um our traditional uh understanding of what suspension gets gets used for and so you know there's um there's there's always it turns out room for innovation um in uh, in the house even if um why we're innovating uh doesn't say a lot of things great about um about the the near term future of congress i think that's a good spot to end i feel relatively positive about that that there is some innovation going on yeah. that, that, i mean that that you know you get into a pickle and then you have to get creative and you know, Johnson, to his credit, has has been creative in this sense. Um, the the uh, um, was it the consent calendar? I mean, there there was a, you know there's a, there was a, this thing that they were trying to do where if you got enough people from enough you know the consensus there, calendar the consensus calendar uh, that's yeah. already that's already taken, but maybe they can just <laughs> re, they can rebrand it as the as yeah. this. So um, anyway. Uh, Molly, thank you as always for for talking to us. I know that uh, for uh, some of the maybe non political science people out there, there that smoke may be coming out of their ears at this point. But I I really enjoyed this conversation. Smoke I that- comes out of my ears sometimes, <laughs> and I am a political science minded person, yes. so um, I'm sympathetic to the listeners who are feeling that way. Yeah, but I, but also I I just love having somebody to talk to about this kind of stuff because it's a it is a small universe, but it is a consequential one for everybody. So. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me.